Who were the people of Jesus? The lame, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the unloved. Why did he gather these? Because following Jesus is not a power trip. It is a journey of grace. How amazing it is to have such a partner for our lives. How wonderful to be called beloved by a God who shares every step with us as we struggle, doubt, fear. How great this grace that keeps us moving toward the kingdom, whether we run or walk or stumble along. Please join Pastor Glenn Thomas as we find our way through life together. The Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I need. You lead me to the safest places. You lead me to the safest places. To walk in the meadow and lie by the stream. You meet me in the quiet places. You meet me in the quiet places. Our psalm reading this morning comes with these familiar words from the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. This psalm sort of begs the question, do we think too much about death? Do we talk too much about death? Is our faith, our religion too focused on death? There are a lot of answers to that question, it seems to me. When it's of course we do. I mean, it is the constant shadow. It is part of what it means to be human, to know that we are mortal, to deal with this shadow that hangs over our entire life. It's part of what distinguishes us, I think, from the rest of of the creation, and it is in its own way not a bad thing. An awareness of our own mortality, our limitations, both gives meaning to our life, gives purpose to the limited time that we have, and can protect us from a reckless disregard for life, both of our own and by God's grace of each other's as well. Of course, I do think sometimes it's a bit worse now. Part of the experience of living in this pandemic is this more acute awareness of our mortality, of this plague that looms above us that at any moment, at any day, we might succumb to. And knowing that hundreds of thousands of people have died in this country, millions across the globe, and always wondering if we could be next, and it shapes our behavior, it shapes our interactions with others, it shapes our accessibility to things that we used to take for granted, that we used to consider normal. The problem, of course, is that that's no way to live. It is a necessity, to be sure, and I would never suggest to not do what is safe. And I would, in fact, say that part of being a follower of Jesus means that we are constantly protective of each other's life, and to do things that put others at risk, to do things that continue the spread of the virus, that's wrong. That's not Christian. That's not what we're supposed to do. But at the same time, we need to make the most out of the life that we do have. Even if it is within certain limitations, we are still, I think, called by faith to embrace and enjoy whatever life that we've been given. 
I do think, too, we can say yes. In fact, we do talk and think too much about death in faith and in religion because we focus way too much on life after death. Now, we are way too worried about whether or not we're going to live in heaven after we have left this earth. We are way too interested in what happens after we die, which for first puts us in the danger of denying the grace of God. This this anxiety we have, this uncertainty we have about the ultimate salvation that God has promised us in Jesus Christ is a way of forgetting the promises that have been made to us by always leaving some doubt to that as, as if to say, well, Jesus didn't actually fully die for our sins, that the resurrection was not a complete salvation of the world that there's still some work left to do and it's up to us to do it as if jesus's work was not sufficient for us but of course the real danger of thinking too much about life after death is that we tend to forget to think about life before death we tend to forget the importance of our discipleship we tend to not do the work we have been put here to do in this time we tend to not live our lives to the fullest we tend to not be servants We tend to not sacrifice for others. We get so caught up in what is yet to happening that we forget what is actually happening right in front of us right now. We use that as an excuse to be irresponsible. And in the meantime, the world needs us so desperately and God has placed us here with such important work to do. I believe that that's very much why God has given us this promise of eternity so that we might spend less time and energy worrying about what will happen after we die and instead use that same time and energy to worry about what's going to happen until we do. But we can also answer the question this way. Do we think and talk too much about death? No, we really don't. We are ignorant, in fact, of the challenges that come with living in this life and in this world. We are too casual about how hard it is to live, about the dangers that are out there, about the dangers that we face and about the dangers that others face. We're too casual with this gift that God has given us. And though we love to claim for ourselves this label of pro-life, in fact, the truth is is that we do so many things that are just simply not. We are not invested in health care, in well-being. We are We are casual about administering the death penalty as if it was our right to do so. We live every day in a denial of the truth of our sin, of the capacity we have to do harm to ourselves and to others. We have this sense of privilege because our life is safe and we don't face the constant terrors of lack of food or adequate housing or medical care that so many on this planet do. Perhaps if we were more cognizant of this valley of the shadow of death that we must walk through, then we might be more invested in maintaining and preserving and giving quality to life, to our life, and to others' life. It is important, of course, in this verse that we do not miss out on the most important word here, which is not death. It is walk. Actually, walk through is the way we translate what is really one word. That is this verb that has to do with passage, with movement. 
The psalmist reminds us that the most important thing in the world is not death, not our enemies, not our challenges, not even our failures. It is the movement through those things that defines life. It is our God-given ability to take one step after the other, this gift of faith that compels us to keep moving forward no matter what. That is the true gift of God's grace, that death is neither the first nor the last word of everything that we do. And so we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd, you give us new birth in the waters of baptism. You anoint us with oil, and you nourish us at your table with heavenly food. In your goodness and mercy, dispel the shadows of death and evil. Lead us along safe paths, that we may rest securely in you and dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. For your name's sake. Amen. Our word today is gathered, the Greek word synago, which means to come together, uh, to collect or convene, to accompany, to assemble. Uh, it has particular implications for the notion of hospitality, uh, of how we are when we come together, how we treat one another, especially how we treat strangers when they come among us. It is also the root of the word for synagogue, as it appears in the uh, Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament, which is an assemblage of persons, right? A, a gathering or a meeting of persons. And it becomes kind of analogous then when we think about the Christian church, the Christian community, again, as an assembly, uh, as a congregation. Part, of course, what's tricky about that is, is the official idea of a congregation of a church in the way that you and I might think about that is not really part of the way the apostolic community understood that. Uh, the notion of a, of a church body with a specific location to gather a specific membership. Uh, it comes centuries after the resurrection, and in the beginning, the church is really households and small groups that meet, often secretively, and all that they share is this common identity of themselves as followers of Jesus. It's a combination, really, of two words, by the way. It, it is the word for with or together, and, and then the word to, to bring or to drive together or induce together. So it's not just those who just sort of accidentally find themselves in the same place, but those who are particularly, even purposefully, brought together, because it is a verb. Often we sort of think about a, this gathering as as a noun, right? We are the congregation. We are the people who are self-identified as part of this parish group. But in its original sense, in its best sense, it is not about the product of the gathering. It is about the act of gathering together. Not just a loose or random aggregation of people or objects, but something purposeful, something with mission. And so it's most common place. I think the, mo the most easy, accessible spot to find it in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
And I think that verse really highlights the distinction between the way we treat that word as something static, uh, an event, the gathering. Here Jesus really provides it this context, uh, this sense of purpose. It comes in the midst of a number of sayings of Jesus about seeking out the lost, uh, about protecting the weak, not being a stumbling block for those who are still new to the faith, about forgiving and then about binding and loosing the very essence of how the church does the gospel within the context of community. So gathering is not a goal, not an end. Uh, It is the journey, uh, the way we become the church, the way that we become the body of Christ in the world. And now, as much as ever, that act is vitally important. We look to So the third week now of this uh, ongoing conversation about what I think may be one of the most important spiritual ages of our time, and that's racism. We started talking uh, about uh, this notion of oneness that is so much a part of the way that the gospel is taught and preached in the early church. And we talked last week about Paul's image of us being one body and all of the implications that that has for us. Today I thought we should spend a little time on the word belonging because that is also very much at the heart of the way we treat others, those who belong to us and then evidently those whom we identify as not belonging to us, not being one of us, belonging to different groups and how that then becomes sort of the root, the seed of of racist behaviors and racist acts in our world. It's a really important idea, a really important concept on the hierarchy of human needs it's the top it's the pinnacle of identity of knowing who we are because of who we belong to and it it's such an essential part of our well-being our emotional and our spiritual well-being to know that we belong to something that that experience of a of a newborn of an infant of not making that first connection with a parent with a family of not having that sense of attachment can be a lifelong, uh, the beginning of a lifelong series of troubles. But most importantly, it's really at the heart of the gospel. Maybe that's why it's at the heart of the gospel, because God knows how terribly important it is that we should know that we belong and to whom we belong. So in the baptism, in the act of baptism, uh, the sort of climatic moment of the rite of baptism uh, is when we mark uh, the ba- the baptized, and we say these uh, words, uh, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. Those are words about belonging, um, that we've been sealed, that we have this this mark right put upon us so that we know and everyone around us should know that we belong and who we belong to. And while we often talk about baptism as sort of the introductory rite of becoming a part of the church, both that physical congregation and then the entire invisible body of Christ, 
It is at its heart about belonging to God, that moment when God looks down upon us and says, okay, now you're mine, and you will always be mine, and you will always belong to me, and nothing can change that. Nothing can interfere with that. As Paul says in the Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus once it has been proclaimed to us in the day of our baptism. It is, of course, belonging is, of course, an inherent question uh, that arises in any conversation about church and faith. In the Old Testament, uh, it is very much about these uh, people that we call the the chosen people, right? The people who belong to God, this family that begins with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then how he brings them out of their slavery for the exact purpose that they could be his people, how he chooses them and brings them to Sinai and establishes this covenant, this relationship, these uh, guidelines by which they will know how they belong to God. And part of, of course, what is uh, essential in the Torah is its distinctiveness, these distinct ways of living and being in the world uh, that will always mark them as God's people. And, and so those ideas then fold over into the New Testament uh, with this promise of grace uh, that impels us into this relationship with God where he fulfills the promises of that covenant by bringing us into a permanent relationship, by stepping into that relationship in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, he becomes real in our relationship, how it happens by God's choice, of course, and then begs the question, if God is a God of relationship, if he would go to such great lengths to enter into the to the creation, enter into even our suffering and death to be in relationship with us, then we obviously are called to be in that same kind of relationship with others. So as we make our way through the scriptures, as we make our way through God's word, it becomes obvious uh, that belonging is definitive uh, of faith uh, and of life. And it really, in many ways, begins right at the first commandment, right? The first thing that we should know is when God says, I am the Lord your God. These are words of relationship. This is a declaration of God saying, this will be our relationship together. You belong to me. I am your God. You are mine. I made you. I saved you. I loved you. I am yours. Right? And, and it's, uh, it's expanded in so many ways throughout the word in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, the people are reminded in the midst of the giving of the covenant where it says it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations that, that this is the heart of, of what it means to have a God, is that he took us out of this slaved relationship with the Pharaoh and brought us into this covenantal relationship with him. And so then as we move to the New Testament, then Jesus becomes the incarnation of that promise first made so long ago. And Paul will use words like this to describe it in Ephesians. He'll say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ 
before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Notice two really important concepts here. One is that he chose us in Christ. Not just that he gave us Jesus, that we might somehow then make our own determination of what that could mean for our lives and what we might choose to do with it. No, that that the giving of Christ was an act of choosing by God. It's what makes us belong to him. It's his claim upon us. And that this claim is eternal in both directions. That it is not just something about our life after this life is over, but it is something that began even before this life began, that it is wired into the very act of creation itself. So then when we follow Jesus through the Gospels, through his teachings and his ministry and his actions, Jesus is, of course, constantly involved in the work of choosing those who will belong to him, calling his disciples and other followers to him. And then the way he uses the word kingdom. And then, of course, the way he uses the word kingdom, the reign of God, the rule of God, something that we belong to by definition, not by choice, not by option, but a definition of who we are. We are the ones who live in the kingdom of God and by grace abide by all of its qualities and expectations. What gets actually more interesting when we talk about belonging in the Gospels is we talk about whom Jesus did choose to belong to him. Because, of course, in every instance, in every account and story about Jesus picking people, it always runs sort of counterintuitive. It's not the people we would choose if we were Jesus to belong to us. It's usually the ones we would not. So, for example, the story of the call of Matthew, right? As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is a constant reminder in all of Jesus' teachings that the ones who belong to him are the ones who need him the most. And it is a constant and fascinating aspect of religion how hard we try to not be ones who need Jesus, to be self-righteous, to have a self-contained faith, to dismiss, deny even how badly we need Jesus in our life. There are, of course, other instances. There are the parables of the wedding banquet, a couple different instances in the Gospels. I like Luke's version uh, in chapter 14, he says, he's, Jesus is telling this parable, and he says, Then the owner of the house became angry, and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the slave said, Sir, when what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the slave said to the, and the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in. Fascinating parts of of that particular parable uh, that that the king has this passion to fill his banquet hall, that it's important that all come and belong, that there were some who were initially called and did not grasp 
that that was their place that they belonged needed to be there uh, but that he goes out again and again and then it finishes with this idea of compelling people to come i mean when we hear that word belong we think of voluntary membership but that's not how the gospels talk about what it means to belong to god and it means to belong to god is to be chosen to be chosen even before time and that really redefines that word for us both in terms of who is chosen and these presumptions, these assumptions that we make about what it means to belong. Jesus is constantly crossing boundaries and violating rules and choosing those, um, not only those who we might not necessarily choose first, but even going so far as to choose enemies, to choose those ones who are not only disliked, uh, but unloved. And, of course, the constant example of that in the Gospels is the Samaritans, right? These age-old uh, enemies of the people of Judea, these sort of shirt-tail cousins who had gone the wrong way, uh, who had been at war with each other, who worshipped in the wrong place and, and worshipped God in the wrong way, and and who were distinct as are we now distinguishing each other by race, would be exactly the way that the Judeans would separate themselves from the Samaritans. But it, it's always happening. And and Jesus is constantly breaking down that expectation that somehow the Samaritans should not belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, and we see it in a couple places, but I was thinking about these verses in Mark 7. Uh, it says, Jesus set out from there and went away into the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and she bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, I don't think Jesus' comment is an attempt to be cruel to this woman, to put her down because she's a Gentile, uh, because she's not one of the chosen uh, people. I think, in fact, uh, this comment is for the audience. It's for the crowd. It's for the Jews and the Judeans uh, to shame them about the way that they think about others. And so it goes with all of these interactions between Jesus and people outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the chosen few, his constant reminder, the way he makes it an issue and a challenge for his disciples and his followers is the same way he makes it an issue for us. Have we decided who does not belong? Consciously or unconsciously, do we look at others and see them as outsiders, as not part of us? That's really a pretty good working definition of what racism is and how it functions in our world. When we look around at those who we consider part of our group, do we see the true diversity of the creation reflected in them? Or are we primarily focused on those who belong to us, to what we belong 
it is also worth mentioning here as we come to the end of this to think a little bit about how these issues affected the early apostolic community, how they played out in the first days of the church. And we see in a couple of places in the book of Acts where as the Gentiles come to be a part now of this community of faith, how those original followers of Jesus who understood and identified themselves as Jewish, as part of the chosen people, dealt with this infusion, this inflow uh, of these others, of these who were different. Uh, Not just different in the way they practiced and thought, but again, different in race and different in background and tradition. And so, for example, if we were to spend a lot of time in the 10th chapter of Book of Acts, we would see Peter being challenged by God to redefine uh, certain built-in ideas that he had about what was clean and unclean, about what belonged and didn't, about who was in and out, and this new way to see these Gentiles, to see Cornelius and his family uh, as part of the same family, the same group of followers of Jesus. And then again, as Paul begins his missionary work, it sort of comes to a point in uh, the 15th chapter where Paul returns to Jerusalem and they have a gathering, they have a meeting uh, with these first followers of Jesus and they're not sure what to do with these Gentiles, these foreigners who are coming to believe in Jesus and coming to live in the Spirit and to follow him. And, and again, that, that challenge to the church is central to the faith. Because if the church had not found its way through that, had not overcome that sort of racist instinct to shut out those who were different, well, you and I would not be here. And we would not be having this conversation. Someday, I suppose that the rest of the world will have to face that same question, how we passed through this moment of our time. And will there be those who will not be a part of that conversation because we could not do what the first church was able to do? If we could not open our eyes and our hearts and look beyond these built-in boundaries, these self-created walls and break them down and let others in. What we miss in the heart of this is, is our mission, uh, is our purpose, is what it means to belong. Because as we can define that word belong in narrow terms, then of course it always begs for us the question, what about me? How do I know I belong? And if I believe that there's, uh, there are those who cannot belong, if I believe that those are, there are those who are so different that are not part of me and my world, that are not part of the family of God, then how can I know for sure that I am? Join me again next week as we continue this conversation and talk about the beautiful diversity of what God has made. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. This podcast is a ministry of St. Matthew Lutheran Church, Omaha, Nebraska. It is edited by Rick Swanson, posted and promoted by Jacob York. If you have questions, comments, or topics you'd like to suggest, please write us at beloved at smlutheran.com.